Welcome to episode number 16 of our podcast series, The Paper Trail, from the Netherlands Journal of Geosciences. My name is Henk Kombrink, and in my position as the editor-in-chief, I'm asking authors of papers published in our journal about the highlights of their research, but also the driving forces behind performing the study. Just to make research papers more accessible and giving authors a platform to tell a bit more about what goes on behind the scenes of writing scientific papers. Today, I'm talking to Rick Wenting, who is an independent researcher from Haarlem in the Netherlands. Rick and his co-author, Marloes Kortekaas, who works at EBN, recently published a paper in our journal about the influence of fault plane architecture on rupture propagation. The title of that paper is Induced Seismicity in the Groningen Gas Field, Arrest of Ruptures by Fault Plane Irregularities. Welcome, Rick. Hi, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, before we, we head off and, um, and dive into the geology of the Groningen field, Rick, can you maybe um, tell a bit about, about yourself and your, on your background? Uh, yeah, I can. Um, I studied uh, physics in Delft University. And after that, I did my PhD on semiconductors on amorphous silicon solar cells. So not exactly a study in geology. Uh, then I joined Shell and worked for about 15 years in upstream working on hydrogen uh, manufacturing. And then I moved to exploration and production where I was working in the group of general research. Um, and we addressed topics like uh, difficult uh, natural gas that, that was in very tight rock or uh, CO2 sequestration and the integrity of cap rocks. And the last 10 years, I was working on the induced seismicity uh, for the Groningen field. See, so in that capacity, you, you worked on the Groningen field for quite a, some time then. Yeah, actually, it all started after the big uh, earthquake in the Huizingen in 2012. And then there was a request from NAM to, uh, to, to, to create a, a sizable uh, research group within Shell and Exxon to, to address, uh, let me say, the issues and to understand actually what was going on. Yes. Yes. I see. Um, so yeah, for you, the, the, the Groningen field is, is very familiar, of course. <laughs> um, but, but, so would you be able to kind of yeah, set the scene a bit uh, in terms of how the field looks like um, at three kilometers depth for those who are not too familiar with it? Yeah, actually, uh, if you think about the pancake, uh, it's something similar, but then a bit larger. It's actually an, uh, quite a flat reservoir of about uh, 100 to 300 meters thick, and it spreads uh, over an area of 30 by 40 kilometer. And this is a big sand pack, uh, which, uh, which can be divided in two parts. The upper part... Let me say the upper 80 meters is a, a, a quite a porous sandstone, uh, and below that there, there's also sandstone, but it is a little bit more uh, tight and less porous. So it's the upper part where most of the gas um, reserves. Well, actually, were found. yeah, 
yeah, it, it is all, of course, above the water table and, and uh, uh, the, the field ferries and the water table, uh, of course, is, is determining the amount of gas that can be yeah. Uh, recovered. Yeah. Okay, so that that sets the scene a bit, and 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 so you, your your study with you you performed with together with Malus Cortecas uh, addresses the, yeah, the the presence and the effects of of irregularities in in, in the major fault systems dissecting the reservoir, um, which if I yeah when I read the paper it seems like this is really the first study where you really uh, took a very close look at, at these irregularities isn't it uh that's true and uh, the the reason to do so was that um well when uh, I was working in shell uh, uh on on this topic and um, there were other colleagues like uh, Peter van der Boogaard and uh, Luz Buizen from TNO who were doing similar things. Um, we uh, we we saw in in let me say more simple studies uh, that that it was easy to make a rupture uh, in the reservoir under let me say the conditions uh, uh, that we get when we produce gas. Uh, but it was not clear at that time how uh, such a rupture would spread in uh, three dimensions. Um, so, so at that time, I uh, I got uh, to know uh, Marlous Cortecas. He was working at EBN, and actually, she was working um, uh, uh, on the seismic data cube to see how basically the uh, the, the faults. Uh, uh, how many faults there were. There were much more than, uh, let me say, were in the NAM catalog. That was the first thing. And secondly, she was very interested to see how they would penetrate deeper into uh, the earth. So through the carboniferous up to the uh, the, the carbonate platform below. Uh, and um, well, when so actually uh, that, that gave me an opportunity to say, well, uh, that's interesting that you are uh, that 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 you can make such a detailed pictures of the faults. Uh, let me try to to see what I can do with it in a more advanced uh, finite element mechanical models. Uh, uh, and that was um, maybe first to introduce it in that way. I, uh, Jan van Elk, uh, who uh, was the, the, the technical lead uh, in NAM, who actually steered all the research uh, on the Groningen field and on mm -hmm. the induced seismicity. Uh, well, uh, in, in collaboration with him and uh, in agreement with him, we, we decided that I would focus on what is the kind of information uh, that we could see from the larger tremors. Uh, for example, the one in 2006 in Westeremden, of course, the Huizingen, and later the Zeereip one. So, so the focus, what, what, what is the information we can get out? And obviously, then you ask yourself, is how does the rupture spread in the three dimensions? And yes. so, so it was very welcome that I uh, learned uh, to know Marloes, uh, who was actually uh, trying to make a very interesting maps uh, of these uh, ruptures. 
and uh, and so I would say, well, uh, with with some uh, uh, pre-processing in Python and so on and so forth, I was able to to get these surfaces from our loose into the finite element packages, and to see what was going to happen there. Yeah, and l- l- before we get onto the the kind of the modeling approach you took, um, I understand that the the, the the interpretation of these fault irregularities is quite challenging because they are close to this, the, the resolution of the seismic. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. So, so how, how did Malouse, I, I guess that, that was more kind of her part of, 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 of the work, but how did she manage to kind of confidently identify these, these irregularities in the seismic? Well, uh, the, the, the whole, <laughs> that's a very good question. At first, uh, that was not successful at all. So when I started uh, with the, let me say, the rupture planes that I got from Marlouz in 2016, uh, the only conclusion I got out of it after importing that into the models was that the the rupture could spread uh, almost infinitely uh, to the north or to the su- or to the south or whatever so uh, let me say in a lateral direction and uh, of course that is not what was going to happen uh, in reality that was not that that is not how it was observed no 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 we we haven't seen any uh, so far any rupture that uh, that was larger than maybe a kilometer in lateral uh, dimensions so so analyzing the housing uh, uh, that was maybe the maximum uh, uh, the maximum length in lateral direction and uh, uh, but, but uh, at the same time, I discovered uh, all kind of numerical artifacts. Uh, in, in so, so it it was not very conclusive, uh, and we had to be very prudent to make any kind of conclusions uh, about that at that time. Um, uh, and uh, but but of course, uh, the question remained: what was happening in lateral direction? Um, and uh, that 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 question actually uh, was very relevant to to get an idea about what could be the maximum uh, magnitude in the Groningen field. So 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 actually, if you have no clue or no idea what stops a rupture, uh, then it becomes uh, uh, not so easy to to set the maximum from that perspective. Yeah, to make predictions. Uh, exactly. And yeah. there were a kind of, let me say, uh, of course, correlations in uh, from natural earthquakes that you could say, well, it, it is very rare to uh, to get an, uh, an aspect ratio in a rupture plane more than a factor of 10 or something like that. And, uh, and you could use that as an estimate. Uh, but basically, you wanted also to understand it more from a physical point of view and uh, whether the, the things that, that we could see in natural earthquakes, whether they could all, would also hold in this particular case in the Groningen field. Um, yeah, I, I get a sense now that th- this paper that you published this year uh, has quite a long history, which, which started in 2016 already. Yes, and um, uh, it, uh, and there were a couple of things that had to be addressed, uh, and that took a long time. 
is to get these rupture models uh, working reliably uh, in a reliable way uh, in these finite element packages. So, so you had to uh, in two dimensions. Uh, we were very confident what we were doing. It was very easy to uh, uh, to to compare uh, the numerical uh, results with analytical results, for example. And I could compare the work with uh, my work with that was that was done by Luz Buizer or by Peter van der Bogart, who were also very active on the two dimensional uh, ruptures. But it was very uh, well, there were, was actually nobody who was really doing that in three dimensions at that time. And um, and it, 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 it required also a lot of rethinking about uh, uh, how the, this, this uh, let me say, uh, rupture models, uh, how the grid had to be constructed and uh, what kind of parameterization of these surfaces uh, needed to be done to get it working. And that is very specific on, uh, let me say, the numerical codes. Right. Uh, yeah, like, like I said, before we, we, we dive a bit into that. So uh, you were saying at, at, at there was a point where Malus got a bit more confident that, that actually there are these old irregularities in, yeah. in the Groningen field that, 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 that could be kind of interpreted somehow. Yeah, and that, so you, you clearly saw these irregularities and, and also if you, while well, you just are in the mountains, uh, for example, especially in the, the uh, uh, let me say in the United States, in where you see these big sandstones, uh, out, sandstone outcrops, like yeah. in Zion Park or whatever, you see all these irregularities, uh, these jogs and steps, as I call them. So, so, so they are very natural, actually. Uh, and uh, actually, I haven't seen uh, in. In, in nature, never actually a very perfect flat plane. <laughs> so, so the, the, it would be very, uh, strange to, uh, to, to expect also in the subsurface a perfectly flat, uh, plane. Uh, and, and also that, that is of course realized, uh, uh, we saw these signatures in the, in the, uh, in the, in the reconstructions of Marloes. Uh, but that, yeah, well, to, to really model them in all the details in the finite element package was at that time uh, not easy. So mm -hmm. we turned it around and said, well, uh, what is the kind of things that we may expect? And let we then model them artificially. Uh, so just to see what their effects are uh, rather than, uh, than, than, uh, than, uh, uh, than using her very detailed uh, fault maps and, and directly yeah. import them. And, and so that is the approach you took and, and describe in the paper, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, and also uh, from the laboratory and uh, from all kind of other, uh, uh, let we say, uh, structural uh, geology, we know that these steps and jocks are, are just natural elements uh, in faulting. So, so it was not, it, it was actually more uh, the inability to do these kind of things uh, uh, earlier in these uh, finite element packages uh, than, than saying, well, they came as a surprise or that it was something entirely new, that which is not the case, of course. Yeah. Now, I guess it, it makes sense to, to apply observations in the field 
to to what is happening in the subsurface, even though yeah the resolution may not be that that high that that you can actually interpret them in all in all the detail that you ideally want but no it makes sense uh, and and there was another thing that was very important uh, to to uh, to uh, to restart with that uh, that research after 2018 uh, mm-hmm. because the zeray uh, earthquake clearly showed uh, an, a preferred direction or unidirectional uh, rupture uh, that was starting somewhere that was really moving in one direction rather than in two directions. And uh, there were other publications from Amari and also uh, very good work from Steve Oates from Shell that all showed that uh, uh, unidirectional uh, propagation of a rupture in lateral direction uh, was possible. Uh, and that means that there must be barriers in along uh, strike uh, that that basically stop the rupture uh, for one or another reason uh, in one direction and let it continue for maybe a slightly longer time in the other direction. So apart from, of course, uh, the, uh, the 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 work that uh, Malus did and uh, the outcrops that we see there were other indications from the seismics that yeah. we said well we have to address what kind of barriers could be there and yeah. could uh, could really stop the rupture yeah. uh, so and then you kind of build a, a finite element model where you simulated the, these things along two or three major fault lines isn't it Exactly. Yeah. We, uh, so, so there were, uh, uh, what we uh, realized was, uh, well, the, the major question in, in the MMAX workshops, let me start first with that, was if we want to have a very big earthquake, uh, or if that would be possible, then it must penetrate into the Carboniferous. Otherwise, you cannot get a very large earthquake in Groningen. Uh, so, so the first question was, is it easy uh, for the rupture to uh, basically to go from the reservoir into the Carboniferous, yes or no? And the second question is, can it grow in a very uh, 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 in lateral direction over very long lengths? So these two yes. questions was, were, of course, very important in, in these discussions about the maximum magnitude. Uh, so the first focus was, uh, and, and that's where we started, is that were the jocks, so basically the things in downwards direction. Uh, uh, so, so if the rupture could start somewhere in the upper part of the reservoir, it could never penetrate into the salt above it because uh, that is very ductile, but it could penetrate down into the carboniferous, but what would then be the effect of these kind of jocks? And uh, the, what we also know from uh, natural earthquakes is that if there are important stress variations on those jocks, uh, then that could be mechanisms that stops a rupture. And in this case, uh, a horizontal jock that was also seen or suggested by the work of Malus uh, actually uh, appeared to be a very remarkable barrier in the rupture propagation in two dimensions. So, so that was a very, uh, well, let me say, now uh, 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 well, I would say fortunate result is that uh, <laughs> that in, in, it, it was not that easy to uh, to to get the, the rupture uh, down a jo- uh, 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 to pass a jog of a of a certain size. 
So that yes. was a very good thing. Uh, yeah, sorry. And, and, and what I'm wondering uh, a little bit is, so let's say, yeah, it, it is a joke or an irregularity that, 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 that prevents the, the rupture to move downward into the carboniferous or, or laterally. Yeah. Um, so, but I imagine you, you will then end up with, uh, quite a, a bit of stress concentration onto these irregularities. How, how does that then dissipate? Uh, or does that not? Yeah, that, uh, that it, it actually it's, uh, it's more that, that, uh, it's not that uh, difficult to imagine, at least for the downwards ones, because if you get a, a kind of an horizontal, uh, 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 an horizontal piece in that jog, then the, uh, let me say the vertical stress, uh, or, uh, or the normal stress on that particular part of the fold enormously increase. Mm-hmm. And it makes it very difficult to, uh, for the, uh, uh, for the rupture to, to, let me say, to make, provide so much energy that it can pass that, that very strong local increase of, uh, of normal stress on that particular part of the fault. So that, that was, uh, that was also, uh, one of the big figures, uh, where we did for a lot of conditions, uh, we, we did these simulations and show how, let we say, the, the dimensions of those jogs and, let we say, the, the, the energy related to it, uh, yeah. uh well, basically, uh, either decide the, the rupture stops there or it can pass, uh, uh such a barrier. And, uh, and then we made the conclusions that, that, let me say, jogs of tens of meters, uh, were sufficient, uh, to, to stop, uh, basically the rupture. Um, the, the, uh, the other important thing is, of course, that you could imagine that if you have a, a, a rupture, or let me say you would have a very large natural earthquakes, then obviously, a jog of, let me say, 10 meter or whatever would never be a barrier. Uh, then, then, uh, then, then, then you need a much larger, uh, jog to do the same thing. So, so it, that, that is why this work is new. Uh, so, so the kind of learnings that we had from the natural earthquakes, uh, we had to put them into the context of the, let me say, the kind of induced stresses by gas production in the, uh, so, so basically in the reservoir, you start with a certain rupture, it gets a certain energy, and then you want to see under those conditions whether these barriers are effective, yes or no. Yes, but but and, but would it be possible to to conclude or, or at least to hypothesize that the energy, the given the certain reservoir thickness of yeah. the root ligand, um there is only so much amount of energy a rupture can cause because because of the, the given thickness. It's it's not the entire overburden. Um, given that thickness or the, and and the energy that 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 is being released by a rupture that is induced, uh, plus the scale of these irregularities, does that is it? Would you be able to conclude like okay? It is likely or it could be that the irregularities that are there are sufficient to prevent ruptures to propagate. I.e., can you, can you therefore, of course, you will never be able to, to say that with certainty, but 
to conclude that, yeah, given that reservoir thickness, may, maybe the, the chance is it's less likely that a, a very big one will ever occur. Yeah, that that was basically the conclusion: is that 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 uh, uh, these kind of let we say barriers of tens of meters, mm-hmm. uh, provided they are there, and and, and uh, 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 then then it's very hard to pass them uh, with the energy that you release yeah. in the reservoir. Yeah. Yes. Because so far, if I'm correct, and, and I think you state that in the paper, uh, it has never been um, observed that ruptures actually did propagate into the the Carboniferous, isn't it? No, that, that is that is uh, uh, so far. It uh, we have no indications that that happened, uh, and moreover, uh, the the other thing that that we realized is by, by doing all these simulations and also the analytical work was that if, if let me say, look to the stress conditions that we have in the, uh, in the reservoir. So let me say from 2000 to, to 2020, they, they basically have not become so much worse in the last five years. I mean, so if, uh, the situation would have been very unfavorable. Uh, then the, it it would not have been a surprise to have such a propagation into the Carboniferous already in 2010, for example. So so it's not that 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 uh, how to say it. So 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 it is not something that uh, that you could say. Uh, that, could only happen now or couldn't happen uh, in in 2000 so so in that sense the conditions were not that much more unfavorable at this moment right and, and what about uh, maybe that's a bit of the million dollar question <laughs> what what do you think if if gas production would have continued well uh, i don't know and yeah. uh, the, the reason is, um, and, and I want to be very, uh, this is very important. Uh, we are the first that have done these kind of simulations. Yes. And although we have done our best to do it as good as possible and to constrain uh, uh, everything in the modeling as good as possible with, with all the data that we have, uh, I think that this work has to be repeated by an independent group like TNO, who can do similar kind of simulations, or another independent group, and to see whether they come to similar conclusions. Uh, for example, I know in the University of Utrecht there is also now an, uh, an, uh, somebody who's working on this uh, PhD who is doing similar calculations. And uh, I would first, uh, I want to see uh, first whether he sees similar things, come to similar conclusions before we would make any kind of statement about that. I, I think uh, uh, this is uh, how you say it. You don't want to skate on one day ice. Uh, <laughs> let me put it in that way. So it, 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 the whole thing is that, that we showed in it, with this work that it is possible to do these kind of calculations and that it is sensible to do them. 
Uh, and at the same time, we realized that it had to be uh, has to be repeated by independent groups uh, and to see whether they come to similar conclusions before we make any kind of predictions uh, for in the future or in the past. So the best what we can do is give indications and show that these kind of issues are important. I, I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you should, yeah, a study. Oh, it, it would be um, a, a bit preliminary, maybe, to absolutely. Conclude. Okay. No, no, we 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 can't expect any bigger breaks than we had. No, 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 no. Let's let's just continue. That's <laughs> absolutely. It is only that that uh, there are a couple of things that that doing this work is that we realize that. Uh, the, these kind of models can be really improved, yeah. uh, so to give much more sensible answers, and that that fault irregularities are an important aspect there, and um, and should be considered. Uh, and at the same time, we say let's show, uh, let's see what others uh, uh, calculate and and uh, what what the results they will have. Uh, before we come to any conclusion there. Yeah. Because if, if I understand correctly, it is, it is not only the, the, the presence of, of fault irregularities that, that may form the, the, uh, an explanation as to why faults did not, uh, continue, no. propagate into the Carboniferous, isn't it? No, absolutely. There was, um, the, uh, there was one, uh, very good, uh, uh, paper in this MMAX workshop that we had last year from uh, Zobeck, uh, who is a uh, very well-known professor from yes. Stanford. And um, they saw uh, basically in, um, in, uh, in clay-rich formations like the Carboniferous that basically the stress conditions which were more favorable uh, than in the, in the sandstone uh, uh, above it. Uh, and, um, and, and basically, uh, also Nam saw that in the tambour shale, uh, also the stress conditions are a bit more favorable. So it could also be, uh, and, and, uh, that, 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 that has nothing to do with the jogs or steps, but basically that the stress conditions in the Carboniferous are more favorable and prevent basically a penetration into the Carboniferous. And but, to, but what what do you exactly mean with more favorable? Uh, how, how do I need the, to? The ratio between the vertical and the horizontal stress is right. more favorable. So basically, that yeah. the horizontal stress is larger than we conservatively assume, and uh, in that sense, that the that the stress on the fault uh, or yeah. the, the the shear stresses are actually uh, much lower than we uh, conservatively uh, use. And it's also that that is very important in the article that that we stress we really give that a place in in the article that we realize that that of course other there are other possibilities why that 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 maybe we haven't seen anything in the carboniferous yet and and we also for that reason. Well, we suggested that it may be good to to have an, uh, a small mini frag job in the Carboniferous to see uh, indeed whether the the stresses are more favorable, yes or no, to yes. make more sense out of that. Yeah. So as as always, 
you end up with a a couple of hypotheses and 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 then it, it is uh, it's not like black and white okay this is no. the, the single explanation <laughs> no that that is absolutely sure and the the other thing is uh uh where we also rely quite heavily so far on a few experiments uh uh, from the University of Utrecht is what is basically the cohesion in the faults uh, in the Carboniferous. Um, and uh, why is that important? Because uh, normally uh, if the fault is well healed and is in a good condition, uh, it could be expected that the strength of the faults in the Carboniferous is very high. Uh, so, so, and that could also be an explanation why, for example, uh, an, an earthquake would not go into the Carboniferous. Now, um, at the same time, what what the Utrecht experiment showed was that that once you uh, uh, have a, let me say, a fracture in 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 a clay-rich material like the Carboniferous, it it very poorly heals. So, so we. So we did, in that sense, also a kind of a conservative uh, form of modeling where we assumed that uh, the faults were reactivated in the Carboniferous and probably are not perfectly healed and would have a, sl- a low cohesion strength. So so that that is also... Uh, a, 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 we have to... So, so it's also one of the, let me say, things that have to be sorted out uh, and could also be an explanation why we haven't seen it. So actually, there are three things. It could be that the stress is more favorable than we think. The cohesion of the rock in the Carboniferous is much better. Or indeed, it are the jocks uh, that help us uh, for preventing uh, further penetration. Uh, and we, uh, what we have done is to make these three aspects more clear in this article. Yes, exactly. So, so, and that is really, but that, so that's really about the propagation down into the Carboniferous. But, like you say, you, you, there's also the observation that that laterally there is there is a, a limitation, or there is just it, it goes into into just one direction. Exactly, yeah. Which is still, so that leaves, that, yeah, so you don't look at the Carboniferous Desert, you stay within the Rodeligand. <laughs> yeah. Um, but are there still kind of, is there still another kind of explanation as to why that, that can happen? Um, well, there are two things there also. Uh, uh, so so we, we, we first wanted to know what kind of steps do you need to stop the rupture in, in, in lateral direction? And yeah. actually, it appeared that also those steps uh, in the order of tens of meters were good enough to stop the rupture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the other thing that you see is uh, that you see also in the map uh, that that uh, that uh, that is in Figure One is that basically the dip of the the fault is also varying. It's not a constant dip uh, from, let me say, through the whole field. So basically, this, this, at least in the reservoir, you see uh, dip angle variations, yeah. and uh, and and also uh, those that uh, appeared in simulations. That, for example, that starting your nucleation uh, somewhere on a on a fault, it was very hard to, let we say, to 
to to to see the rupture moving into let we say an, a, a fault part with a much more unfavorable dip. Uh, so 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 indeed there are two mechanisms that could yeah. uh, stop uh, the rupture in that uh, that way. That is a, maybe a dip variation or a local dip variation or a step. Yeah. I think the, the study is, is really quite interesting because it essentially um, what you arrive at is, 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 a, is a picture of the subsurface that that maybe we, we can't really see that well through the seismic and 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 it's too easy to, or it's very easy and I think geologists do that a lot like okay faults like nice straight lines and you see that so much in the cross sections etc. But it, it takes the message home that that that, that is a, a very much of a simplification, isn't uh, it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was also one of the questions I uh, or, or, or things I raised during the last uh, DPNL uh, workshop we had. That I said, well, uh, there are such a fantastic uh, groups in seismic inversion, and. Uh, well, if, if there would be a little bit more effort on uh, to, to see whether the things that Marlouz discovered uh, could be repeated by other groups and maybe yeah. with better resolution, um, that would help a lot. Uh, so, so there, there is still a, a lot to do in this untracking area, and yeah. I, I, I'm sure that that with all the knowledge that that is, for example, in Delft University, in seismic inversion or whatever, or maybe within the oil companies, yeah. that uh, that things can be improved over time. Are you still involved with this research on Groningen yourself, or, or is, is the publication of the paper kind of a, uh, an end to it? <laughs> uh, for the time being, it's an end to it. Uh, actually, it all started uh, because... Uh, uh, Three, four years ago, no, three years ago, Del van Elk asked me to, to give a lecture on the MAX workshop that we had last year. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm happy to do so. Uh, uh, and um, we decided that I will do it independent. So, uh, so there were no payments or whatever. So I, I didn't also, I wanted to have all the time myself to do it uh, and, uh, and to sort it out. Yeah. And um, and that was very nice from uh, from Jan van Elk. He gave me all the time and uh, confidence to do that kind of work and to present it on that meeting. Uh, but uh, to do it uh, not uh, not not lonely, I uh, uh, I was very happy that Marloes uh, uh, also joined uh, me in writing that paper and uh, preparing that presentation. Yeah. So that that it was. That, that, yeah, because it's so complex, uh, and, uh, you need, let me say, uh, like I had my colleagues in Shell, I also needed, uh, people, uh, like we have in EBN, uh, that are very capable and, uh, and, and have a very good idea about, uh, let me say structural geology and, uh, and, and, and what can we learn from the seismics, yes or no. So in that sense, I, I was extremely uh, thankful that Marloes uh, helped me, uh, and uh, and that's also why we uh, decided to make a, a paper together. Uh, uh, because uh, well, without uh, let we say the people that were uh, in EBN, uh, this wouldn't have been possible. Uh, 
uh, I, 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 this is a kind of work that where you need to to work together. Uh, and in the past, I, I had a lot of uh, help from people from KMI, KNMI, from uh, to analyze these uh, signals. And of course, from Shell, uh, from uh, like Steve Oates and uh, Peter van der Bouwhart and uh, Stephen Bourne, uh, yeah, who also helped me uh, a lot with uh, in all kind of discussions. Now, in that sense, this yeah, this is a clear example of of the yeah the, the benefits of doing collaborative research, isn't it? Yeah, and that's why. Uh, in that sense, that's why I say, well, this is for me a kind of a natural end uh, yes. because so far uh, I, I was doing it uh, uh, together with others. Yeah. And uh, the only uh, way I would like to, uh, I would continue is with others uh, yeah. simply because it's uh, it's not something you should do alone <laughs> no. for, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in but, that but, sense, it's good that we have now this article, and, yes. and of course we published everything in extensive NUM reports. But uh, we are very happy that that there were very good reviewers uh, within the, uh, uh, the, the the journal, uh, yeah. and uh, and and they were very extremely helpful in making the article much better than than when we submitted it for the first time. That's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. So thanks also very much uh, uh, from your side. Yeah. That's good to hear, Rick. <laughs> and uh, a, a sound editorial process. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I think it's also important for the community that, that because, uh, yeah. well, in some way I have a history with Shell, uh, EBM. Uh, so, so we are a bit the dirty oil companies or whatever you may call it for the society. But now, because it is done in a proper scientific uh, uh, journal, uh, yeah. properly reviewed, uh, we hope that 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 it is more accepted now by well, us. Well, and and yeah, and but also the work you did for this that that wasn't uh, you, you're not with Shell anymore. No, 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 no. I so, suppose so. So no, no. It it was just for me a, a personally an honor that Jan asked yeah. me to uh, give a presentation on the Mbox workshop. Yes. And. Uh, and I thought, well, I I have free time, and so I'm in a fortunate position that 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 well, it was for me also kind of yeah. well, very well, uh, a good time to do these kind of things and to use yes. your brains and so on and so forth. Yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, uh, Rick, well, we our conversation lasted longer than I uh, initially thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I think you set the scene very well. Um, and, and, and kind of, yeah, explained what, what, what the difficulties are, the challenges are, but also how, how this paper has really contributed to our advancement of, 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 um, our understanding of how the Groningen field behaves. So I want to thank you very much for taking your time today. Well, and I, I think that I could give this podcast, uh, it's very uh, funny to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. Now, I also think it, it is a, it's just another way to, to make research a, a bit better known and, and, uh, to promote it. And, and, and also I think talking to authors of papers 
to me, it adds a dimension to a paper or to a, a scientific contribution because it, it can be a bit dry sometimes. But I think no, or hearing the author speak about the research, to me, it, 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 it yeah, um, it makes it a bit more alive. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Anyway, have a, also good, uh, good time, you, and yeah. uh, thanks very much. Thank you too, Rick. Okay. Um, this was episode number 16 of our series, The Paper Trail. Thank you for listening and goodbye.